Almighty God, pour out the Spirit now, your Holy Spirit, on this congregation and all that is about to happen, the preaching and the hearing, the proclamation and the receiving, the planting and the growing, Lord. We pray that all of that would now come under the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that there would be nothing in our flesh that would hinder us from receiving what we need to hear this morning. We pray that no, nothing of the enemy would stand between us and the power of your word. Lord, we pray that you would not only grant us the hearing of the word, but give us the grace to be doers of the word also. Lord, make us doers of your word. Let this be a word of comfort, grant strength and encouragement through the preaching of the good news today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you need to know something, you need to be reminded of something, brothers and sisters, that will occasionally slip your mind. It certainly has slipped my mind from time to time, and here it is. To enter the kingdom of God, to enter God's kingdom through faith and baptism is to be born into a cosmic conflict. To enter into God's kingdom through faith and baptism is to be born into a cosmic conflict. Every Christian is not just born fighting, we're born again fighting. You are a born again fighter. Every Christian who is baptized in our church, here at Christ Church, from the newest baby to the oldest adult, receives the sign of the cross on their foreheads with these words. Here's what is spoken over you. These are powerful words. Receive the sign of the cross as a token of your new life in Christ in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified. And here are these fighting words. Listen, to fight bravely. To the, you are marked with the cross in order to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil and to continue as his faithful pitiful, meek, little slave. Oh, no, that's not what we say. No, and to continue as his faithful soldier and servant to the end of your days. Amen. Those are the words spoken over the baptized in this church and throughout this tradition. As a born-again baptized Christian, you start your new life in Christ with fighting words. You know, uh, I think about the Scots-Irish. They're from the place in Northern Ireland, Ulster, that area. They kind of showed up here. I may or may not have some of that in me, only a lot. Uh, but those are kind of fighting people, I think. And that famous Ulsterman, C.S. Lewis, wrote this. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who, who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Lewis continues, Christianity teaches that this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity thinks that this universe is at war, but it does not think this is a war between independent powers it thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. 
Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. You know, we are often surprised and thrown off balance when we encounter the reality of this conflict because when, or when we, the conflict that is inherent because of the gospel and when we live faithfully for Jesus Christ, it often comes as a surprise to us. We forget, though, that we are still the church on the battlefield. Church, you are still in the fray. We're still on the battlefield. We are not the church triumphant yet. We are still the church militant. We forget that the kingdom of God comes into conflict with the kingdom of this present darkness precisely as the gospel expands and we take territory away from the enemy. He does not give it up without resistance. There will always be conflict. Thus, in Christianity, please listen to this. In Christianity, there is no such thing as a spiritual non-combatant or a spiritual pacifist. By coming to Christ through repentance, faith, and baptism, you have joined a battle. That is the reality that you and I live in and that we can never lose mind of. We must be mindful of that. And so we see that in the passage from Mark chapter 1 today. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness come into conflict over the word, the teaching, the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus is traveling in this passage through Galilee, and he comes to the village Capernaum, the village of Simon Peter. And he enters the synagogue, and he begins to teach. Now, during this period, and I guess still to this day, the synagogue was basically a Jewish community center. Worship and teaching did happen there, but it was more than that. It was a, a community center. And there was a custom in that time called the freedom of the synagogue in which a traveling rabbi might be invited by the rulers of this synagogue to teach the law or to teach the prophets. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is taking that opportunity, the freedom of the synagogue. But this teaching that he offers is not what his listeners are used to. Uh, look at verse 22. If you're following along in the scriptures, it's Mark chapter 1, verse 22. Take a look at that with me again. <clears throat> and they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. In the King James Version, it says, and they were amazed at his doctrine. They were amazed at his doctrine. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, usually when the scribes, who were the Bible teachers of the day, would instruct from the scriptures, they would often use a lot of footnotes. Remember having to do footnotes on papers? They would have a lot of references. So they would say things like this when they would teach a passage from the Torah or from the writings or perhaps from the prophets. They would say, well, you know, of this passage, Rabbi Hillel says, oh, and everybody would go, ooh. Good authority. Way to go. Good footnote. Or they might say on this passage, Rabbi Shammai says, Ooh, good authority. We like him. That's very convincing that you used him. But Jesus never does that as he teaches in this synagogue. He does not appeal to other authorities. Instead, he teaches, Jesus teaches, as if he has the right in and of himself 
to tell us exactly what God means when he speaks in scriptures. One commentator says of this kind of Jesus' teaching, it says he spoke with the finality of the voice of God. He doesn't appeal to another authority. He teaches as if he personally is the authority. It says here that the people were amazed. They were astonished at this kind of teaching. So why were they astonished? And by the way, uh, that word in Greek for they were amazed or they were astonished actually has at its root the, the term to strike or to smite. And to this very day, in some parts of the world, English speakers, when they're astonished, will say, I'm gobsmacked. I'm they won't say plum, but I'm, I'm just gobsmacked. Ben Sharp would say, I'm plum gobsmacked. I'm, just, I'm struck in the mouth by that, amazed. Well, they were amazed because Jesus is speaking. This is critical. And this is what gets Jesus in trouble very quickly in his ministry Jesus speaks as if he has the same authority of God. Hmm, who could have the thing? Well, maybe God has the same authority of God. Hmm. Here's the point of conflict in this passage, and it comes out in the Gospels when Jesus is often in conflict with the scribes, the teachers of the law. Jesus claims the final ultimate authority to teach regarding the purpose and will of God. He claims the final ultimate authority to teach the purpose and will of God. We hear that most clearly and most frequently in teachings like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, chapter 5 through chapter 7, in which Jesus gives his teaching by saying, you have heard, it, you have heard that it was said in the old days. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And he would, in other words... He's saying, uh, yes, I know that it's been interpret interpreted, the Torah was interpreted this way, but let me tell you what it really means. He is, in effect, saying, I have the right in and of myself to define all of human existence. And that authority of Jesus in his doctrine, in his teaching, is still felt today. That conflict that arises from his teaching authority is still felt today. Even in the Christian church, in the Christian church, there, especially here in the West, there is increasing pressure to reject the teaching of Jesus Christ in order to fall in line with the current obsessions of the secular world around us, those obsessions which are in conflict with the word of God. And the pressure is, you need to conform to the world. We don't like that doctrine. We don't like that teaching. Change it. Those in the church who have surrendered to this pressure have exchanged the genuine doctrine of Christ, teaching of Christ, for what has been described as moralistic therapeutic deism. Basically, it is Christianity stripped of its most offensive qualities and rendered down to this. There is a God... He wants us to be happy and nice. Well, that's an anemic proclamation at best, but it certainly isn't the gospel. You know, our own part of the Christian church, the Anglican church in North America, and even in our diocese, we are constantly being pushed to conform to these pressures, to evolve with the times, 
those pressures aren't just within our, outside our church, they also arise within the church. This is always the case. It's always been that way since the time of the apostles. You need to evolve with the times. But brothers and sisters, we have not done that, and we cannot do that. Our consciences are taken captive by the word of God. Here we stand. We can do no other. Jesus claims, you see, Jesus claims that his words are eternal and that his words do not adapt to conform to the spirit of the age. They are immutably true. How can I say that? Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Matthew 24, 35. This is Jesus. This is what he thinks of his words. This is what our Lord thinks of his own doctrine. Heaven and earth will pass away. In other words, heaven and earth are mutable and transient. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They are eternal and enduring. You know, we depend for our salvation on the unchangeable goodness of our God, his unchangeable disposition of love and favor and grace to redeemed sinners like me and like you. Thanks be to God that he doesn't change. And as a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, this is what it says, Hebrews 13, verses 8 and the first part of verse 9. It says in verse 8, Jesus Christ, listen, this is what the Bible says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Behold, I am the Lord your God. I change not is how it was expressed in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's particularly good news because I know that his love and favor will never diminish for me and for you. But here's the next thought on the writer of Hebrews' mind when, he, mind when he says that Jesus Christ is unchangeable. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. In other words, Jesus is all the, always the same. His teaching is always the same. The apostolic witness is unchangeable. What we have revealed to us in God's word is unchanging truth. But the teaching of Jesus is not merely a moral philosophy. It's really, listen, this is how it differs from moralistic therapeutic deism. Jesus' teaching is not moral philosophy. Listen, basically it comes down to this. It is, it is God in, in human flesh describing the way the world is really supposed to be. We call it the kingdom of God. Jesus, te his teaching is a description of the real world that is God's kingdom that has broken in in Jesus Christ and that is coming about through the gifting of the Spirit and the age of the church and will be consummated at the end of the age. As Christ followers, this message, please be aware of this, that truth is going to bring us into conflict with the message, the story that the world tells. The world tells a false story, a false description of reality. The kingdom of the world tells us that there is no reality. This is what we're saturated in around us. By the way, please remember, brothers and sisters, that um, missiologist Ed Stetzer and others uh, say that basically, if you take into account all, listen, all religious believers of all types, so not just Christians, but Muslims and Jews and all other 
religious believers in the United States of America who genuinely take their religion seriously so that it affects how they live their lives, please listen, that accounts for at most 25% of the population. 25%. So a lot of people you know, might say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I guess I was born here. That's not what we're talking about here. So what we need to remember is this, please, is that, the, that genuine followers of Jesus Christ, where, it really, where, where Jesus comes in and messes up your life, you know what I'm talking about? No, I'm, well, I'd love to go do that with you, but I can't because um, I'm a Jesus follower. You know, where, the, where, um, where there are options offered to us that we cannot partake of or where we change the way we spend our money or our time. That's a, that's a, you are a minority population, a minority population. But this is what the world around us believes and teaches. It teaches that there is no reality beyond the natural material universe. It teaches that history is a meaningless succession of events. It teaches that humanity is a purposeless orphan child of time plus matter plus chance. It teaches us, this is what the world teaches, the false story of the world, that sensual pleasure and physical comfort are the only goals of existence. This world teaches that death is the worst thing that can happen to you. Which is why some people are gobsmacked, amazed, astonished. Now we have that there are people who are willing to take the risk in a pandemic to come together to worship. Now we have lots of people who need to not do that. At Christ Church, we offer a live stream. For, and so we, we applaud that decision among our constituency. We provide a means for them to, to be with us. It's not, the, it's not what they want to do, but it's the best they can do because they just can't be with a bunch of people and get the, take the chance of being infected. So we acknowledge that we have to take precautions and, and that kind of thing, and we have to provide means for our compromised uh, church members to participate when, when they can't gather together physically like this. But when fairly physically healthy individuals get together to worship God in the, with the risk of a pandemic over their heads, it's just astonishing to the world. Because the world thinks, well, you could get sick and die, and that would be the worst thing ever. Except we say it isn't. The world teaches that life itself is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And over against that, that worldview, Jesus Christ confronts that message in Matthew chapter 16 and says, then Jesus told his disciples, if any, please, this is the core message of discipleship here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So somehow, self-denial is more true than seeking sensual pleasure and physical comfort, that somehow that's more critical to a real and full and authentic life. Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You can expect conflict if you bring that message. Now, the kingdoms come in conflict in this passage of Scripture over the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' teaching is interrupted in that synagogue by a man who, the Scripture says, has an unclean spirit. 
Now, I think that it is significant that right there in the congregation of the faithful, right there in church, in the congregation of the faithful, Jesus encounters minions of the kingdom of evil. Evil was resident right there in the heart of the religious community. And we need to always remember that religious institutions, local churches, denominations, are not immune to that kind of evil. We are susceptible to becoming the abode of devils so that kingdoms can come into conflict even in the church. We need to be always watchful and vigilant about that. What happens when Jesus shows up in that synagogue? Well, the demon reacts in terror to what? To the presence of Jesus Christ. The enemy, real, the enemy realizes that his time is ended. Mark 1, 23 and 24, and immediately, Mark loves the word immediately, by the way. He just can't say it. It's like Germans with the word also. You know, every time, Mark Twain said, every time a German opens his mouth, an also falls out. Well, every time Mark opens his mouth, and immediately falls out. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, the irony of that in this passage is that the people in the synagogue are actually clueless to the true identity of Jesus, but the demons know exactly who he is and why he has come. It is as if they are saying, this isn't fair. It's not fair. You've come too soon before we were expecting you. The presence of Jesus sends the powers of darkness into screaming terror. Now here's how that applies to us. If you are sold out to the kingdom of God, if you are full of the Holy Spirit, then you carry the presence of Christ with you. The, the scripture says that we have put on Christ in baptism. The scripture says Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you carry about with you the presence of Christ. And if that is the case, and if the presence of Christ brings conflict with the kingdom of darkness, we can expect conflict with the powers of darkness. But also, if we carry about with us the presence of Christ, we can expect to have the authority and the victory that Jesus had over the powers of darkness. That means because Christ is in you, greater is he who is in you than, is, than he who is in the world. You carry about within you, by the power of the person and power of the Spirit of God, you create, the Creator God has taken up residence in you, and you, as, as the temple of the Holy Spirit... The creator God, the most powerful, <laughs> the, the, the almighty is within you. And so we don't have to fear. As a matter of fact, when kingdoms come into conflict, we do see the power of Jesus Christ. We see this. Jesus is victor. Jesus is the victor. Jesus doesn't engage in any negotiation. He doesn't plead with this unclean spirit. He doesn't wheedle the unclean spirit. He doesn't negotiate or discuss. He tells the, de the demon to shut up and come out. And the demon obeys. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. 
and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. The voice that spoke and said, let there be light, commands the demon to shut up and come out and the demon must obey. This was the authority that really amazed that congregation. Unlike the Jewish exorcists of their day, Jesus did not use any kind of incantation or ritual formula to drive out the demon. He merely commanded in his own divine authority the authority of the king who has come to claim his kingdom. That was how he did it. The hand of God reaches into the oppressed man and rips out the evil one. Jesus is the victor. As a matter of fact, John chapter, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. So the answer to the demon's question is, have you come to destroy us? Is yes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. And he does. Now this is so important for us living in this moment in history on planet Earth. You need to understand, I hope you do, and I think you may do, that as, and I, I closely follow, I probably follow more closely, uh, what's going on for Christians around the world, throughout much of the world, not in the Western world, but throughout much of the world right now, there is a, we're not experiencing this, this particularly, these events, but in much of the world, there is a peak in the persecution of the church. Uh, it's happening all over the world. It's particularly uh, the World Watch that comes out from the organization Open Doors for, 20, it's for the year 2020 said that that was the worst year on record for Christian persecution. So that, uh, and there's actually stats and figures to back this up. There are countries that are using the coronavirus as a means, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. They're using the pandemic as a means to clamp down on the Christian community, so that in Nigeria, Christians are receiving only one-sixth of the aid that is offered to others, one-sixth of the aid because they're followers of Jesus, while other parts of the country are receiving much more. In China, unnamed Internet sources are, calling, uh, are claiming that Christians are to blame for the spread of the coronavirus because why? Church. All around the world, India, Hindu nationalism, throughout the Middle East, the usual players. And we even feel the rising darkness around us in this time as well. So we need to hear this word in order to be prepared. We need this teaching. We can see a practical application of this truth as we look back in Christian history. We don't have to look very far. We could look in modern times as well. We could tell stories of how kingdoms come in conflict right now in the world today. And we hear stories of deliverance and Christ's victory in that time. But I want to think back to 1844, to the story of a, a pastor called Johann Christoph Blumhardt. I'm reading from multiple accounts of his life here. Uh, one of the biographies is called The Awakening. But the biographical accounts of Johann Christoph Blumhardt details what happened when a quiet Lutheran pastor confronted the spiritual lethargy and the various manifestations of evil in his congregation and in his village. Bloomhart 
became involved in what he called the fight against evil powers because he was ashamed at the thought of conceding power to the darkness afflicting his parishioner, Gottlieb and Dietus. Moreover, he pitied the woman. Little did he know that he had embarked on an uncharted spiritual journey that would last for the next two years. The battle soon became extended as the same symptoms appeared in Gottlieben's sister, Katharina. Katharina's symptoms became terrible almost beyond belief. Several strong young men were obliged to hold her in a chair, and even their efforts were unavailing to control the frightful convulsions and contortions which racked, racked her body. Through an entire night, this continued, Bloomhart praying unceasingly and rising in his faith. An unnatural voice, not her own, would speak from her, the poor woman's throat and strive to engage the pastor in argument or conversation. But he steadily prayed on. The voice steadily, this voice steadily proclaimed its satanic origin and at intervals gave utterances to a horrible cry of fear of being cast out and losing rest, which issued from her mouth without any intermission for a quarter of an hour at a time. Again, the voice addressed Jesus, demanding that, as he was a high minister of Satan, Christ should not compel him to leave the, this woman in the ordinary way, but that he should cast him out by some wonderful and mighty miracle. Still, the pastor prayed, and towards morning, the struggle culminated. The demon was vanquished and cried out with a great and terrible cry, cry heard by almost the entire village, these words, Jesus is victor. And when the sun arose, the afflicted woman was whole. By Easter of 1844, the, that entire town, by Easter of that year, the entire town was swept up in an unprecedented movement of repentance and revival. The awakening spread beyond the town to neighboring villages and farther afield in the Schwarzwald, the Black Forest region of Germany. Reflecting on those events, Bloomhart, who was not only a theologian but also a poet and hymn, hymn, uh, hymn writer, he penned these lyrics. Das Jesus siegt bleibt ewig ausgemacht, sein wird die ganzen Welt. That Jesus Christ, listen, that Jesus Christ is conqueror is eternally settled. The universe is his. That Jesus Christ is conqueror is eternally settled. The universe is his. We say it every Sunday when we say the words of that prayer before Holy Communion, uh, by, by his death, he trampled down Satan, trampled down the devil. Through his resurrection, he's victorious. He's eternally victorious. The universe is his. During the whole of Bloomhart's life, the humble, grateful woman who was afterwards happily married labored with the pastor for the souls and bodies of the hundreds who came to the Christian Retreat Center that Pastor Bloomhart started at uh, Bad Ball. And now on her tombstone, Katarina's tombstone, you can still see these words chiseled into that tombstone. Jesus ist Sieger. Christ is victor. Brothers and sisters, I tell you that story because we need to remember that Jesus is indeed 
to this day, no matter what goes on around us, he is king of kings. He is the victor over the powers of sin, death, and hell. He has the victory. You, in Christ, have the victory. As a matter of fact, this is the feast of victory of, our, of the victory of our God. Hallelujah. This is the feast of victory for our God. You know, remember that in this passage it is the word, the doctrine, the word of Jesus and the presence of Jesus that are the power of Jesus in that fight. That's exactly what we do here every Sunday, brothers and sisters. We hear God's word in the reading of scripture and proclamation from the pulpit. We imbibe the power of God's word. And then we come and receive the presence of Christ. His real presence under the signs of bread and wine are manifest here through this meal. Word and sacrament, this very, the, the power of Christ's victory comes together and we are the recipients of that victory. By participating in this service right this minute, you are being infused and empowered by the victory of Jesus Christ to face the darkness. So we don't have to have a, a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Empowered by God's word and sacraments, we share in that victory. And we go out from this place in that power. Do not be ashamed to confess Christ crucified. To fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil and to continue as his faithful soldier to the end of your days. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.